0: Welcome, I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show, training for men and answers for women. And joining me today is Jason Rosario. He is the executive producer and host of the Yahoo! original web series, Dear Men, which explores the evolution of manhood. In 2017, he founded The Lives of Men, As a vehicle for black and latino men to explore healthier frameworks of masculinity while serving as a resource as they navigate various life stages as a motivational speaker and media personality his talks often focus on the intersection of self-actualization identity and masculinity with a unique blend of style culture education and spirituality his aim is to inspire activate and nurture the development of well-rounded men. He's a graduate of NYU's Stern School of Business, and today he and I are going to take a deep dive into the challenges, the stigmas, the stereotypes around people of color uh, going and seeking therapy, specifically um, men of color uh, going and seeking therapy. This is something that has been a big question. I've been asked this, um, you know, in the past, and and uh, um, on, on panels. And, you know, it's, it's not m- really my area of expertise. And so I wanted to bring in someone who really uh, understood some of the challenges um, that Black men, Latino men, men of color uh, in general face when it comes to uh, going and, and getting support, going and getting help, whether that's coaching or therapy or group work or whatever the case may be. So Jason and I take a deep dive into that, into the culture. Uh, we took a deep dive into some of the stigmas, and it's it's interesting because there are many similarities uh, across the board um, for just men in general, um, but then there are definitely some nuances that are unique to people of color, and so um, this is a really uh, interesting conversation. I want to give a big shout out to uh, Adem, who helped me produce... Um, uh, question, question the rules of men last year. Uh, he set me up with Jason Rosario um, and was and was kind enough to introduce me. So just before I bring on Jason, just a quick uh, little bit of uh, housekeeping notes here. Um, for those of you who don't know, or maybe haven't seen yet, uh, I have just launched and will be starting on May 15th. So right around the corner, it's, it's the end of the week. We'll be starting a six-week program uh, called Room to Breathe. And so uh, this is a a breathwork program. It's going to teach you three different breathwork techniques. But I've really designed this program to help you reduce stress, reduce anxiety, move through tough emotions, release stuck emotions. Um, You know, this is a great program for anyone, for anyone that could use a little bit more mental clarity, emotional space. Uh, physical relaxation, and so the the program is really designed to help you move through some of those stuck emotions. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can either click the click the link in the show notes and uh, and head on over and join me, or you can go to my Instagram account at Man Talks, and you can find the link in the bio. So. Uh, We did the four-day breathwork challenge recently and had almost 1,500 people join me, which was absolutely phenomenal, and seeing some of the results was pretty wild um really breathwork is my staple uh, it's something that i do every single morning and it's part of my morning routine it really is what helps me process through some some challenging times uh and allows me to feel grounded and calm not to mention that it has significantly improved my my meditation practice um so if you are interested in it go and check it out we're going to be starting on friday i'm going to be also doing two live calls with the breath work program where we are, I'm going to guide you through live breath work. Uh, and then I'm going to answer all of your questions about the physical sensation and how to get into the body, how to release the emotions, um, navigating the anxiety and the stress. Uh, and so the the program is really designed to have you go through your own journey in being able to better understand that stress and anxiety and your own internal state and emotions and be able to release them. Uh, so this has been a very, very powerful tool. It was funny. I got a uh, a message from a guy on Instagram and I had been sharing some of the stories and he said, okay, fine. You got me. You got me. I'm going to try this out. Uh, even though I think that it's, you know, like hokey garbage or like some woo-woo crap. And uh, and then a few days later, he wrote me back and he said, "Honest, honest to God, I haven't cried In in like maybe once or twice in twenty years, and I've cried both days. Uh, He said, "I you know he told me about how he went through a breakup a couple months ago and hadn't been able to really feel it and had been numbing out, and the breath work allowed him to really experience uh, the grief from that breakup." And I think what I've noticed right now is that many of us, many people that I'm talking to, whether it's my clients or people online, um, a lot of people are very stressed. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uh, unknowns that are out there, and breathwork can be an incredibly powerful tool for helping you to move through that. I know it is for me, um, and I also share my uh, my own format of breathwork in in this uh, in this program. So, all right, thank you so much. Don't 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 hesitate to go check it out. If you have any questions for me, feel free to DM me on Instagram at Man Talks. Uh, and I'm so excited for this conversation. It really truly is a wonderful honor uh to have jason on the show so without any further delay please welcome jason rosario
1: thanks for having me connor really appreciate it i know it's been a a while coming we've been talking about doing this for a while so excited that the day has come and um you know excited to have this conversation so yeah yeah Yeah, man
0: how how are you holding up with with lockdown and quarantine how are things going on your end (laughs) family's okay
1: yeah family's okay uh you know thank god uh, my mom is in her 60s and she was actually sick early in february like really really sick and in hindsight you know when she told me she was sick at the time it was like wow take care of yourself take it easy and then in hindsight it was like wow you might have processed that that virus already um and thank god it wasn't anything more serious so um you know everybody else is good you know we're just kind of doing our best to do what we're told stay in wash our hands and um, and then try to use the time as constructively as possible. So
0: awesome. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm I'm doing well, doing well. I think my, my little brother was like locked in, in Jersey. Uh, and, uh, he, he's originally from Edmonton, Alberta and he was, he was stuck there. And I'm I'm pretty sure we're pretty sure that he got the, got the flu as well. got the, Uh. the virus. Uh, so he was quarantined and locked down by himself in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. <laughs> so oh, man. all he can do is, you know, FaceTime him while he eats soup and stuff like that. But he's, you know, thankfully he's recovered and, and uh, you know, but he's, he's sort of stuck out there, but the rest of the family is doing great. So I appreciate that. Great. great, man. Well, let's, let's dive in. I'm going to ask you the question that I always ask, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, it's a great question because I, I, I struggle to, to find an, a starting point to that because there's so many things that when I look over the course of my life, things that I've experienced, places that I've been, things that I've seen, uh, have all contributed obviously to who I am. And you know, I can certainly give you some markers, but, but the one story that I think is probably the through line uh, across all of the experiences in my life and just the ways that I've approached my life uh, was when I became a dad. Uh, I graduated from college in 2001. I uh, went to the University of Buffalo, uh, so shout out to Buffalo State. And, um, you know, coming out of that, May of One, think about where we were at that time, right? So May of One, September 11th happened in between, and then my my daughter was born that November. Um, I was lucky enough to have just started the job, uh, so started my career post, post-graduation, post and I needed to study for some exams and some licenses, right? So I started my career in finance and needed to study for the Series 7 and 63 licenses, really rigorous uh, exams and, and uh, I needed to pass those in order to keep my job. So studying for the exam, welcoming a newborn, September 11th, post-graduation, finding myself throughout that process was really uh, an interesting time, right? At 21 years old. And I look back on that and it, and I use that story because that really shaped the way that I, you know, not only that my, the way my career unfolded, but just the way that I approached my life, right? Had it not been for me becoming a father at an early age—who um, knows how how where my career would have ended up, right? Uh, I might not have taken it as seriously, you know. I might not have been as focused or as ambitious to figure out ways to get better and grow in my career. So, you know, becoming a father uh, from that standpoint was uh, was a, a life changing uh, experience. But then, from a personal standpoint, fatherhood is the one thing in in any man's life who chooses to be a father that really brings you back to yourself in ways that nothing else can, right? It really makes you look at yourself and examine who you are, how you show up in the world, how you love, how you receive love, you know, how do you check your ego at the door in many instances. And so for me, that kind of just started this journey of self-actualization and self-discovery and reflection, um, always wanting to be the best possible person and the best possible human that I could be in order to become a better a dad. So You know, that all of those experiences really uh, started by me becoming a father at such an early age. Mm.
0: Yeah. How how old were you when you when you became a dad, roughly?
1: Twenty one going into twenty
0: two. Okay, yeah, that's that's uh, that's early, man. It's early. I haven't even entered university yet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when you think about when you think about that, right, like in our time, that's early. Right. But when you think about our parents and our grandparents, they were having babies when they were 17, 16 years old. Right, you know, but yeah, for for by by our standards, for sure, definitely an early time.
0: How how would you say that becoming a father changed you? Like, did you do you feel like it thrust you into a, a deeper sense of maturity? Do you feel like you you were sort of forced to acclimatize to a heavier form of responsibility? Like, what did what did that look like for you in, internally? How would you say that that altered you and changed you as a man?
1: One hundred percent, it changed me. Um, you know, just to go back a little bit though. I think one of the things that I'm always aware of in my life in terms of who I am and and how I've been shaped is that by product of the way that I was raised, I'm the product of a single parent home. I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, There's a big age gap between my sister that follows me and then my three younger siblings. So there was a point in time where even in high school, I was already kind of a de facto father figure to my younger siblings, right? And Mm -hmm. helping my mom out working, got my first job at 14. So the sense of maturity and the sense of kind of responsibility was always ingrained in me. I was always aware of that. But then when I became a father, that changes, right? Because now I'm responsible for this young person's life. And I'm the buck stops here, as it were. And, and uh, it, just, it just, I would say, increased what was already in me, right? It just magnified it um, and made me just get super hyper-focused, right? And it's not any different than, than a lot of fathers, right? Whether you're 21 or 35. You know, you become a father, it just it, that, that instinct kind of just triggers in you and you just like, whatever I got to do, man, let's let's just do this. And, you know, you start to really look at yourself through the eyes of that child and wanting to make sure that you show up the best way possible.
0: Mm. So good, man. So good. I mean, I think so shout out to the uh, oldest of five. I'm also oldest of five. Um, awesome. I have I have two separate families and so, but I understand the age gap because like the closest yeah. one to me is like seven years younger, and then the furthest one away is eleven years younger than me, and so I I understand that like being 15 and changing diapers you know (laughs) well you know being 13 or 14 and changing diapers and like (laughs) like, what's happening right now how did I get sucked into
1: this
0: (laughs) no that's not what I signed up for when I when I came into this this little form of mine Um, (laughs) awesome man well talk to me a little bit about about what got you into the path that you're on today? Like what, what led you from finance to where you are today? What did that trajectory look like?
1: Yeah, I, I've always considered myself a man on a journey and it's it's gonna sound, and, and I know you and I speak the same language. So some of the language that I'm gonna use, you'll, you'll resonate with, but I've always considered myself a man on a journey, someone who's always been attuned to the ways I've shown up in the world uh, and how life experiences shaped me. Again, a single parent, uh, my dad wasn't an, a, a significant presence in my life or consistent presence in my life for large periods of time. And so that started to shape my views around how I viewed manhood and, and what what it meant to be a man, right? And I learned in large part how to be a man by observing my mom and the things that she would do and the things that she would say and, and what she wouldn't do. And then also observing uh, other men around me that may or may not have always been good role models, right? But it, But learned through negative confirmation in many ways. So that always being present to that, I think has always shaped the ways that I I showed up in the world. Um, And then more pragmatically in 2016, 2017, uh, the police shootings were were occurring, right? The the police executions of of unarmed black men, Um, the beginning of the current political landscape that we live in today started to kind of take shape. And I was at a place in my career at the time where successful by by all measures, right? But you measure success by how much money you make, your title, what kind of lifestyle you're living. I was checking all those boxes, but I was I wasn't fulfilled. You know, I was feeling that it was just a feeling that there was something more to me in the world that I can offer. So I decided to leave that space in 2017 and launch The Lives of Men as a brand, uh, which was at the time my answer to to, to those two things, right? One is to give myself the medicine that I needed as a young man growing up. So a platform that I could go to uh, for healing and for questions uh, or for answers, I should say. And then on the other end, it was my answer to the police shootings, right? Like how do I start to help depict men of color in, in a more positive light, right? In, In combat to, you know, what Terrence Crutcher was construed as a, as a monster, right? By one of the police officers that shot him. So for me, it was just that. And then all of a sudden, a few months later, Me Too goes viral, and then I'm in the middle of a public discourse around this new conversation around masculinity, and and here I am, you know, so I left, I, I launched a brand, literally three weeks later, I left my job and haven't looked back since, and you know, it's been, it's been a blessing, it's been a challenge, but it's been one of the best decisions that, made in that it, i made, and that it's, I feel like I'm walking in my purpose for all intents and purposes.
0: Yeah, I love that, I love that, I love that. You know the man on the journey. You know I think that that is that's such an apt description of so so many men that I've interacted with all over the world. You know that sense of I'm on a journey. You know and and I'm not too sure where this is going to take me, but I am I'm going to follow the tide. I'm going to follow the 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 wind. I'm going to follow the direction that's pulling me in. And I feel like, a, you know, there's, there's a couple things within that though, right? Like I think that for some men, they are terrified to, to heed that call and start to follow that journey, right? Like when you look at a hero's journey, there's a call to action. There's a call to adventure. There's a call to like go out and discover yourself and discover the world. And there's a lot of men who are stuck in analysis paralysis trying to figure out whether or not they should heed that call and go in that direction, um, and I feel like there's a there's now is the time right where if we find ourselves in this in this uh, spatial point in time where we definitely need more men to heed that call. But secondly, there's also this there's also this idea of like societal constraints that I that I hear you talking about, and, and not even societal constraints, but but the difference difference in experiences that we have. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about. Exactly what you just outlined, you know, and and a little bit around your mission, Um, but to actually have a little bit of of discourse and understanding of what it's like to be a man of color in the United States, and and uh, pursue things like uh, mental health support and getting help and the and the stigmas and the and the conversation around that, because like I grew up in in northern Alberta in Canada, right? So uh, like I grew up in in an area where a racism isn't as prevalent, but it's not as prevalent because there's just not there's not as much. Um, it's a fairly Caucasian area, right? Like <laughs> there's there's just there's a lot of white people, and so the you know the racism is between the indigenous people and and uh, and, and the people that that are on that land now, and so you can kind of feel that tension but after living in New York for a couple of years, I'm like, holy shit, like what, what is all this? Like, this is wild. You know, like it's a, it's such a, it was such a weird uh, experience for me to sort of witness systemic racism and witness individual racism in these moments and see it on the news. And like all of a sudden be inside of it and be like, wow, this is a context that I actually don't really know much about and, and haven't witnessed and seen for myself. And so, uh, so maybe let's just start there. I know I, I know I just said a lot, but maybe let's just start there. What what have you observed as the experience of you know, especially men of color when it comes to um, when it comes to seeking support, when it comes to seeking help, especially. Uh, mental health or uh, emotional support etc well maybe let's just start there yeah
1: yeah so i want to go back to something that you said that i think is incredibly powerful that i think we should spend some time on and that is the hero's journey and what is the what is it the, the the what's the hurdle what's the boundary what's what stops men from taking on that leap when the time comes right because it comes from for everyone it comes yep. to all of us um and so it's what you choose to do in those moments. And I think for, for those men who don't choose to push through that and take that journey and take, and take that challenge, I think a lot of it is because they haven't done the work to tap into that emotional compass, right? That, 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 I mean, we, we have the logical compass, right? Like we can put together a series of numbers on a spreadsheet and come up with a profit number and then understand how to make a decision based on that but when it comes to listening to our emotional, our emotions and, and our, in our, in um, our somatic and kind of sympathetic system, we don't, we're not as good. And I think that's part of the, the the beginning of the work is to really tap into that so that when you, when you meet the moment, you're then able to push through it and make a decision that's transformative for you and for the people that you're around. So, so I love that point that you made. I just wanted to add that to, to that. Um, but then as far as, you know, Look, I, I, we are both doing the work of tackling this idea of what modern masculinity is and what it should look like going forward. We're doing it in, in slightly different ways, but our goals are the same. And I think as it relates to men of color and my representation and the way I show up to this work, I can't do that at work without also. Looking at the ways that masculinity, toxic masculinity, patriarchy has also oppressed Black men, right? And black and Latinx men and men of color in general. Right. So when you're looking at redefining masculinity, whatever that means, that it has two the, the, the end goal has two, um, there are two end goals to that. Uh, because I shouldn't say that. There's one end goal to that, but there are two diverging paths that to get to that point, right? There's the 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 path of kind of the dominant culture, right? White men. Uh, white, straight men that is a little bit less filled with obstacles than it is for a man of color. So some of those examples, some of those obstacles, I don't have the privilege of being able to turn off my, my sensitivity to racism or prejudice. I have to constantly be aware of it because that's just the way that I show up in the world. You know, whether it's at work, whether it's in my personal life i'm I'm consciously aware of microaggressions and uh, instances in which I can be perceived as a threat and then how what does that mean for my safety, for example, just because I show up, I'm six or four, I'm bald, I'm a black man uh, and unless I open my mouth, you would never know that I'm an educated black man, right and that I'm able to see the world in a in a unique way. so I'm constantly judged by my appearance. and so oftentimes what that means is that I have to be I have to make a choice I have to decide how much how tall do I want to show up in this in a space how much space do I want to take up how loud do I want to be and that's not something that most men have to constantly be aware of right unless they're called on it um that's something that I'm just innately aware of so that's one example um you know mental health is something that uh, you know you brought up that is important mental health in our community is has always been stigmatized right And and I think it's something that is cultural it's uh, it's patriarchal in nature, um, has roots in colonialism and in slavery and things like that. I mean, we were at some point in in this country, people of color and black folks were not considered full human beings. And so think about how that carries forward throughout your life in different ways. Right. And, and I think that's important. So for me, doing the work of masculinity and uncovering that is also doing the work of mental health, because at some point those converge. Right. You can't talk about masculinity for any men, regardless of whether you're black, white, Asian, whatever, without also talking about the effects that having to perform to masculine standards, old notions of masculine standards also affect our mental health from a depression and anxiety standpoint. So to me, those those two paths are intertwined.
0: Mm, Yeah, I love I love the way you break that down and just like the inner the intersection between. Uh, between sort of like race and the and the culture of a race, and then and then the uh, the sort of overlay of the expectations from a masculine standpoint, right? And and like how how those are sort of interconnected, but how one also uh, informs the other. I think one of the interesting things uh, I'd love to get your perspective on this is uh, you know I've always talked about. There's a lot of talk about this sort of ta- toxic masculinity and, and pieces like that, and I, I've sort of moved in the direction of saying, you know, I, I think we need to sort of stop villainizing masculinity or femininity, and we need to sort of really hone in on what what the challenge is. And I think in in a lot of our cultures, in the in the Latino culture, uh, even in the Caucasian culture, um, in, in a lot of these cultures, there there are and there is a raising or a pedestaling of machoistic characters right machoistic stereotypes and, uh, and and really overvaluing that and I think that's where a lot of our, our challenges come from because when you when you look at the definition of machoism it, it talks about uh, overvaluing masculine traits and tendencies and denigrating and devaluing feminine qualities and traits and, and tendencies. And so, you know, I think that that concept is actually more harmful than anything else. And, and I, I think that in, in, in certain cultures, we, we actually strive towards that, right? Like for the Latino culture, for a lot of the Latino men that I've talked to, they've actually said, like, that's, that's what a man's supposed to look like, you know, like that archetype, that stereotype of being hyper macho. That's actually what we're told to strive for. So, you know, within within the Black community, what what does that look like? You know, is it, it are you more of a man, or are you qualified? You know, sort of labeled as more of a man for being hyper macho um, and sort of leaning in that direction? Or you know, I would love for you to just unpack a little bit around that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, so I'm Afro-Latino, so you know, my my. My background is from the Dominican Republic. So, yeah. but I am a black man, right? And I think that's the, the, beauty, the beauty of intersectionality and, and cultures. But I, I think I can speak from, from both perspectives. At the end of the day, I don't think, you know, my cheese more or, or, or hyper masculinity is any different than what we are calling patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Or what we're calling toxic masculinity. It's this idea, like, as you said, that anything masculine is, is put up on a pedestal and then anything feminine is devalued. I think from, from my standpoint, when it comes to that, it's really, look, what we're, what we're being called to do in society right now is to tap into, and we hear it often, our feminine side, our, our, our softer side. And I, I think it's, I don't know if that's the antidote. I don't know if feminism is the antidote. What I do know is that the work around, the work that we're doing around masculinity is not about making men better men. As the, or as it were, it's about making men or encouraging men to be better human beings. Mm. And I think if we can focus there, I think that's a much more constructive conversation to have. Um, and then we can get to the point of, you know, what is hyper-masculinity culture? Uh, what does that mean? And how can we start to dismantle that? But really it just becomes hum- a human element, right? It has to become a human conversation. Um, you know, as it relates to, to machismo, it's it's something that I wrote about in terms of how it plays out and some of the the causes to that. I mean, look, we 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 can we can go back in history to kind of pinpoint uh, the certain instances or I guess the, the the genesis of of this type of culture. But I I'm more interested in exploring what do we do on a human level so that we don't drive a bigger wedge between masculine and feminism, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the issue. And and to your point. That's why I also don't use the word toxic masculinity because it implies that there's something inherently wrong with masculine with, with the masculine, but it doesn't really do the job that I think is important, which is let's talk about the behaviors that are toxic. That's the that's the issue. It's not that you know men are toxic. And I think it's just become a catch-all phrase, become somewhat lazy to describe all men uh just behaving badly. But to me, I'm more interested in exploring what the behaviors are and the root cause of that, which oftentimes is. Social economic, it's you know, how many men did you have around you? You know, what kind of men did you have around you? What lessons did you learn as a boy, right? And how are we raising boys to then become adolescent young men and then ultimately men? So, I think that's the more productive conversation as opposed to kind of just you know, using the broad label in terms of toxic masculine or machismo or what have you.
0: Yeah, 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 so good, so good. I think you're you you hit you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's like Focusing on the behaviors is the really important aspect of it. Um, okay, cool. Well, give me give me a little bit of a sense of like what are some of the stereotypes and the stigmas within within the Black community and within people of color around seeking that emotional support and because you know I think I think it varies from culture to culture. Um, but you know, as I was saying before we jumped on the show, like one of the things that I've heard. Um, you know multiple times from some of my friends is, is like you know therapy is is for rich white people and uh, like I've heard that saying quite a few times and I'm like oh okay like tell tell me more about that why is that why is it that you know certain healing modalities are are seen as as um, not only a privilege but something that it's not really like open uh for for the general public so I would love to just uh, like dive into that intersection there a little bit
1: yeah I, and I hear that, and, you know, oftentimes I'm sure it's usually said as a joke. Oh, you know, yoga's for white people or, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 acupuncture and all that. I'm not putting any needles in my body, but you know what, what there's, you know, a lot of truth is said in jest, right. And what they mean by that and just maybe they don't have the language to articulate it is that it's just the access has not been available to us, right? Like we don't have access, our communities generally, um, don't have access to things like acupuncture and things like yoga. And, uh, and so that's, that creates this separation in our minds that, well, because we don't have access and it's not something that I see myself doing, it must not be for me. And that's, that's a myth, right? That's something that we need to debunk. And, and it starts with bringing more access to, to some of these communities. Um, I think aside from some of the common myths that you hear, Uh, or some of the the, the stigmas that you hear is that, you know, you can't therapies for, for, for weakness, right? Like if you, you you know, you have to go increase your, your praying, right? Like instead of going to therapy, you should be going to the church, right? Like those are the things that we hear in our community. Um, And and I think that's, that's something that, you know, again, I think it's cultural as well, right? The community, the church has played a really strong uh, role in our community, but I think I'm going to bring language to something that I'm, I think we're all aware of, but until we call it out, we don't know that it's there. And that is this concept of John Henryism. And, and it's, it's a concept that was birthed out of a study uh, of, of people of color, Black people in particular, African-Americans, to understand why we felt the need to push through strenuous situations and obstacles just to prove that we belonged. And I think that's common in our community, right? When you find... Black people that feel like they have to compete and compare themselves at work, we're more apt to push through our points of of desperation and exasperation at work because we're fearful that we're not going to be perceived as belonging. And And the term came out of a study. Uh, John Henry, was it's a, it's a fable that was uh, applied to this, this gentleman who was competing against the railroad, um, and he was building the railroad manually, and he got to the point where as he's driving the last nail into the ground, he dies of just, you know, hypertension. And it's that same concept, right? It's this idea that we're gonna, as a community, we're gonna push through past this point of of being healthy in some instances, just to prove that we belong. And I think that is something that we need to call out because that's the causes of hypertension, you know, uh, high blood pressure, uh, depression, anxiety in our community that we don't really, it's an underlying, uh, it's an invisible enemy as it were. And until we start to be aware of that, we're not going to be able to tackle it. Mm,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I love that. I love that breakdown and, and just that, that perspective. Um, can you can you speak just a little bit more to uh, some of the, like the collective barriers that of what you observe, like people of color experience when it comes to uh, comes to support? Like I, I appreciate this idea of like, we have to sort of push through to prove ourselves, you know, can you can you just unpack that just a little bit more? Because I think that's actually quite valuable and important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can use myself as an example, right? I um, there's been times in my career where uh, I feel like you know, again, I I I think I'm fortunate enough to look back at my career and say, you know, I've been I've been successful and I've been able to achieve success in ways that perhaps someone else who grew up in my same neighborhood with the same Uh, access to resources or lack thereof might have achieved. And um, i found myself in situations where I have had to work just as hard or even double as hard uh, relative to my peers just to get that same promotion. Um, And there have been times where I've been sick at work. There have been times where I need a mental health day. And I just say to myself, I convince myself and I tell myself the story that I can't afford to do that. Because if I do, I may not be, I may lose that promotion. I may lose the respect of my colleagues. My, my boss may not trust me, you know? And so that's, it's that constant weight that we're, we're wearing that, uh, that does cause the depression, the anxiety that we feel. And so I think that that's incredibly important. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that's, that's really how it shows up.
0: Yeah, and is that, is that you know, I, I think I hear you kind of saying that there's certain parts... Systemically, that are are you know definitely broken within our system in terms of being able to support um, minorities and, and people of color. And I, I would I would love to hear your perspective on that. Like, what are some of the ways in which you you know now sort of like being in this world and being immersed in it? What are some of the ways in which you see the, the system being letting people of color down? You know, or not giving the proper access points, or not being structured in the way that
1: that we actually need. I think you just said it. It's, it's access, um, and you know, and I should have pulled some stats on this um, because it's a great question. But I can tell you that you know, if you look at, I think something like the the uh, American Psychology Institute of registered psychotherapists. I think one percent of that number of registered individuals identify as minority. Think about that for a minute, right? When on the flip side of that, one well, I should say one in 11, I think is the number. So 1%, one percent or something like that, is the number of people that that identify. So when you're looking at a community that's looking for help, and you're looking at communities of color who, um, who are suffering from depression and anxiety at higher rates than the dominant culture, there's obviously there's a disparity there. So culture matters, representation matters. So when they're going and searching for professionals People that can identify with some of these cultural nuances that I'm talking about and they don't find them, they have two choices. They're either going to go with someone that they don't feel fully comfortable with or they're not going to go at all. And I think that fundamentally, when you think about access is so important, um, that's how it trickles forward. That's how it plays out over the life cycle of someone who might be suffering from something, not feeling like they have access to it if they do have access to it not having the proper representation and then they just exiting the system altogether that's how we're failing people yeah
0: yeah that's that's so that's so good man so how do how do we start to how do we start to shift the conversation like from the work that you've done i think in in these types of situations where we've identified like hey there's a systemic problem you know there's an issue here and and we we definitely need to do something to course correct what's happening we often, I find myself, my like logical brain is like, okay, well, where do we start, right? Like, where do we start with, with sort of fixing this, this, this problem? And, and I think that's where we sort of trip over our our feet, because we don't, we don't take a step back to actually like, look at the, at the total uh, issue. And so for you, what are some of the areas in which you would say, we need to be more aware of, like, how do we how do we make therapy more inclusive? How do we start to create those access points that you're talking about? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stop talking now and just let you lay no. It out.
1: <laughs> no, that's a good, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. I think in my work, what I try to do, and again, I'm no licensed psychotherapist, but I do have the capacity and the wherewithal to create physical spaces for people to come together and have these conversations, right? So it may not be a one-on-one therapy session, but it is a safe space, and I hate the term, but safe space for people to come together who might be who might be feeling a certain way, and then realize in that space that they're not alone. So for me, that's where the work starts. Um, I'm I'm so grateful to be surrounded by a lot of friends who are friends of mine who are psychotherapists who are making themselves available, particularly in communities of color. So not only are they uh, therapists of color, but they're focusing their work in communities of color where perhaps their upside financially may not be there, but they feel like their impact is much more needed. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I think we also need the help of, of dominant culture, right? Like people who, who might have privileges that we may not have to come and say, look, where, where can we help? Um, where might I be able to lend a hand? Um, and I think that's incredibly powerful. So, you know, it's an all hands on deck, I think, solution. But I think it does start with representation matters, um, making safe spaces or creating safe spaces wherever you can for those of us who can. Right. So like yourself, people like me um, and others who are leading this conversation around uh, masculinity and mental health and the the intersection of that is creating those spaces, whether it's digitally or in person. Um, I'm starting to see a lot of that in the last maybe three, four years. And so I'm. that, I think, is the beginning of it. Um, and then just down the line, I think we need to allocate more resources. And I think maybe that's a, co- a, com- a government conversation is where are resources being allocated to particularly communities of color to, to place therapists in those communities uh, such that they can actually make a living and doing what they need to be doing, but also making an impact. Because it shouldn't be, uh, for a therapist, say I'm a therapist, I shouldn't have to decide between my livelihood and making an impact where, where it needs to be made. So I think that's another conversation that we need to be exploring as well.
0: Yeah. And, and what's the, what's the importance around, you know, when you think about having therapists in those communities, I think one of the things that, that I've heard over the years is the importance of being able to, to have people that are already in those communities be those roles right like what's what can can you just speak to that because i feel like that's that's quite important
1: yeah i mean i think it's the same concept when you think about the reason why police officers are assigned to certain communities right uh the people that live in those communities want to start to feel like they can develop relationships and rapport with these individuals who are going to be policing them who are in charge of their safety same thing with therapists, same thing with other professionals is if we can have these professionals embedded into the communities that they serve, especially with therapy, because it's so rooted in relationship, it's so rooted in familiarity, I think that's critically important. So yeah, I think that that's it, is can we embed these people and these professionals in the communities that they're going to serve such that not only they can make the impact that, that they need, but that the communities that they serve feel like they're actually being attended to? and that they can look at someone who they might sit down every Wednesday with to talk about these things, but then they'll see them on a Friday in the market. I think that's incredibly powerful uh, to be able to make those connections. So to me, it's, it's no different than what police officers are doing, than, you know, firefighters are doing, living in the communities that they serve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there, I, I, I love that because it sort of takes a, a much more uh, rooted approach to the to the sort of Culture that already exists within that community, and rather than sort of you know swooping in and, and trying to approach it like we normally
1: would. Um, and that's just it, not how our communities work, right? Like, our yeah. communities work in relationship, right? Like, the word community is so important, it doesn't just represent a building and blocks and stores and things like it. it's It's the, the, the unspoken language, right? The feelings that we, you know, the, the, the bonds that we form, all of that is community. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind
0: yeah can you can you speak a little bit more to the importance of community with within like within cultures of people of color because I think it's it's radically different for like I think about the 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 community that I grew up in as a kid, and it, you know like I knew some of the neighborhood kids, but there there wasn't really uh, a sense of connection, you know, like I, I didn't, like I was friends with some of them, but my parents didn't really give a shit about most of the people that were on the block. If I'm being honest, there wasn't that sense of cohesion. When we went to church, we didn't see people that were on our block. Like there was a, a fairly large disconnect, you know. Like I, I, saw people when I went and played hockey, and there was that community. And I went and saw people when I went to school, and there was that community. And so there was a lot of of separation of communities. But what I hear you saying is that there's there's a much tighter knit sense with within that, within your community. And so like, can you just speak to that a little bit?
1: I mean, look, plain and simple is a matter of survival for us, right? You know, when you think about the ways that we needed to survive in you know, during slavery, right? Or even just going back post-slavery uh, to colonial times. I mean, community was a form of survival. It was our only way to survive. And then you, you, you take that through uh, post-slavery uh, reconstruction, the Jim Crow era. Um, community for us has always been um, a way for us to get the resources that we need, whether it's food, whether it's jobs, whether it's you know someone knows someone that can put you in touch with someone else to get your group, you know your your immigration papers together, right? Like that's the that's the importance of community for us. That it goes beyond having a barbecue uh, in, in a random summer month, right, or summer day. It really is a matter of. Did you know that so-and-so's aunt was dying and she needs a kidney? That person can then take that to their aunt and then there's a match all of a sudden, right? And I I think that's, these are beautiful stories that are very real, but are nonetheless important. And I think that's the level of community. That's the importance of community. So when we say community, it goes beyond, you know, who lives on my block and who lives on my building. It's who have I helped, who can help me, and how can we help each other?
0: Yeah, I, I love that because I feel like that is in many ways, like, and again, I'm a, I'm a Canadian, but I have immersed, I know I'm married to an American now and I've immersed myself in American culture a little bit over the last couple of years. And one of the things that I've, I've definitely felt is, is missing there is that, that sense of like broad sweeping community, you know? And so I, I love what you're talking about because I feel like this is, this is where we could learn a lot. You know, if we just opened up conversation and dialogues and borders, and started to say, like, how do we build systems in place where it supports everyone? You know, and and to learn from to to learn from what's working well in these different areas. And so, I, I really appreciate that. Tell me a little bit about some of the some of the conversations. Like, when you do a, form your groups, when you do open up these dialogues, what does some of the conversation revolve around? What do you feel like are the the important topics, important subjects that your your groups dive into? Like, what are what are people generally wanting to talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, oftentimes the conversations start very basically is just trying to develop the language that we need, right? What is the lexicon of healing? What is the the language of of, uh, self-reflection and self-discovery? What does it look like for us as men, particularly black men and black and Latinx men? So that's usually where we start is what are you feeling? and then connecting that to your body, right? So if you're feeling like you're choked up, well, that might mean that you're, you need to cry, right? Like let it out, let's explore that a little bit. Um, do you feel butterflies and tension in your stomach? Well, it might be that you feel anxiety. Let's uncover that, let's unpack that. So it really just starts there. Like let's let's tap into, um, and that goes, be, that goes beyond communities of color. I think that's just men's work in general. We need yeah. to start moving from here into here right? And and so it starts there. It's like, let's get in touch with our bodies, because our bodies are going to send us a lot of information that we need in order to move forward and to heal. So it starts there. And then beyond that, it's, okay, so, you know, what do I do when, um, you know, the world is calling me to be more sensitive and be more vulnerable and be more honest and open, but I don't feel like the world is really ready for that. What do I do? How do I show up in that space? And I think that's where, you know, to your point earlier about bringing, both men and women together a little bit closer, that's where I think the work converges because I have a lot of single female friends that say, you know, I want a man that's sensitive and I want a man that's this and that, but when they get it, they, they're like, oh, what is this, right? Like they want the <laughs> traditional macho macho guy that we're all kind of conditioned to to, to look up to. So, so I think that is a lot of that work is let's figure out how we're both affected by this stuff and then figure out where our work converges and then where it deviates so that we can all do our work individually. And then come back together, and and really, and this just came to me. It's about really building stronger community, right? Yeah. Like where does that come, and where does that converge? And to me, that's that's the real work. So those are the conversations that we're having.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, it's it's, it's very uh, it's very similar, right? Like I, I love what you're saying about getting out of the head and into the heart, right? Being able to access your emotional bodies. I, I think that that's fairly universal across the board in terms of masculine culture. You know whether it's religious or um, or ethic, ethnic. I think one of the major things that I've seen over the years is that we have been sort of cultured and uh, taught to overindex and overvalue our rational mind, especially as men. You know, and and to our detriment. And I think that's that's part of the systemic issues that we see. Right? Is that we're we're trying to figure out these very human based problems or issues with pure analytical logic. And we, we remove the heart connection of like, what, what is it that you actually need? Like, you know, or what is it that I actually need? And, mm-hmm. and how do we come, how do we come to a conversation leading with our hearts rather than uh, a bottom line?
1: Um, you know, when we talk about intuition, right, we always refer it to female intuition. Yeah, and I did yeah. this not too long ago. I said, you know, men, we have intuition too. Don't let anybody think, make you think that we don't. Uh, it's just that we've forgotten what it feels like and looks like, so we need to tap back into that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think
1: one of my one of
0: my favorite quotes. I I say this all the time, so I'm sure my listeners have heard this before. <laughs> but one of my favorite quotes is by Einstein, and he says, "The rational mind is a faithful servant, and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift." And we've and we've created a culture that has honored the servant and forgotten the gift right that we we are missing especially as men many of us are missing this this intimate connection with our gut intelligence right with our with the wisdom of our intuition and yeah. and that's why we, we we become obsessed with control right like you, you have to right you, can, you kind of like have to move towards uh, trying to fix it on control i'm yeah. i'm i'm curious jason like you know this this conversation, um, or, you know, around supporting people of color, mental health. What what questions am I not asking? What questions should I be asking? I think I'm always curious about that because, you know, what, what I've learned over the years is um, I only have my subjective experience. You know, I only have the life that I've lived and the people that I've worked with, and and I know I'm always missing something. And yeah. so I'm I guess I'm curious from your perspective, like what questions. Should should be in this conversation that maybe aren't. That's
1: a great question, and I think just first and foremost, the fact that you have the courage to ask that uh, and to at least put yourself in that inquisitive mindset is so important. Because oftentimes, when you have, uh, you know, so say a, a white man is questioned about his privilege, and and say I'm questioning you about your privilege, just to say you know, oftentimes what you're, what I'm going to be met with is defensiveness, right? It's like, what do you mean? Like, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to reuse the race card and all that? And I think that's not the case, right? Like, unfortunately that happens often, but what we're really doing is wanting you to take that standpoint that you're just taking right now, which is always being mindful. And I think it's, it it may not be questions because I think you're asking the right questions. What I would encourage you to do though, is to be mindful about where you're Diversity switch is right. What position is it on? Is it on or is it off? And even you know, just being mindful of the fact that you can turn it on and off is a privilege. So if you can, to the extent that you can, always keep it on, on, right, and always be aware because that's what's going to make you kind of not only ask the right questions in the moment that it requires, right? Because the moment is what is what dictates what questions you ask. But you have to before you meet that moment. Have done the work to get yourself emotionally present to that moment. If that makes any sense, right? I, I, I think I'm talking in, in very yep. nebulous terms.
0: No, 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 but, no. no. But it, you, you, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I would, I would love for you yeah. to just unpack a little bit. Like, I think that diversity switch of on and off is 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 actually relevant to this conversation. so, mm-hmm. can you just speak to some of the components that you've seen over the years that go into like what is a diversity switch, right? And and how do we know if, if we have it turned on? And how do we know when we have it turned off? I think you you put some of those points in there, but I would love to just flush that out a little bit more.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think I mentioned it earlier, right? It, it's about knowing the fact that as a, as a man of color, I don't have the, the ability to not be aware of how people perceive me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because of the way I show up. But for a, a white man who is a straight white man showing up in corporate America, he's just one of many. So he he's just in the crowd, he's in the flow. And so I think if he has his diversity switch on off, he might miss the opportunities to identify and maybe even celebrate points of difference, right? We're, we're always talking about celebrating points of sameness and um, figuring out how we might be more the same or similar than we are different. I think that's important. But I think it's also important to look at instances in which white we might be different, and I think to your point earlier, use those opportunities to learn about each other, right? Mm-hmm. And explore culture, explore perspective, um, and then potentially learn something new—not only about the person you're interacting with, but about yourself. And I think that's what what the diversity switch does is that if it's off, you're you're not even looking for those opportunities. You're not uh, open to to finding yourself in those types of conversations. And I think if it's on you're going to find ways to engage with people that you may not normally engage with over lunch at the train or or riding the train at work, you know, over drinks at the bar. I think those are the opportunities that we have to be proactive in searching for. Um, and I think that's the, that's the beauty of the diversity switch is keeping it on so that you're open to those opportunities.
0: Yeah. I love the way you're, you're laying that out. Cause I think like, I remember last year I worked on a project and, um, you know some of the some of the guys that I was working with were were black men and one of the guys sort of towards the end of the project was like hey I just want to thank you like you know this was such a great experience and yada yada and at no point in time did I feel like a black man during this project with you like why I'm working with you and I was like and and I kind of was taken back so I was like what well, I don't even know what that means like like what like what do you mean <laughs> and and he proceeded to tell me that a lot of the times, when he's working on these projects, he feels like an outsider, especially when he when he's working with someone that might be Caucasian, and yeah. and I, I think for me it was like one of those experiences where I was like, oh, I don't even have a context of what it's like to be in your shoes. Like, yeah. like it really it like really woke me up where I was like, holy shit! Like, I would have I would have never even come into this interaction expecting that there is a part of you that is worried about whether or not I'm going to treat you. Just like anyone else, right? Just like right. one one of my buddies who's white or Asian or like whatever, I I would have never even expected that. And so it was it was actually jarring for me in a way because it took me back and I was like, wow, that's that's a new perspective that I that I didn't even know was there. And it made me much more conscious, you know, through other interactions of just being like, okay, like how am I presenting myself? How am I showing up? You know, and and just being aware of of not only how how i'm being perceived but how i'm interacting in those in those circumstances and I'm, I'm wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit about the the lenses that people of color maybe have going into certain situations specifically because of the you know because of the system that, that we're in in the united states and because of the the circumstances that unfolded over the over the years but i'm wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit
1: yeah, I think you, you captured that story is pretty much captures it, right? It's this idea that here we are, we're gonna work on this project together. And I need to be aware of as, as a black person in, in that team, uh, whether or not my work ethic is gonna be judged, right? If I call out sick or um, what do I need to do to show that I prove, right? Whereas just being selected as part of that team should be enough proof that I belong. I feel like I need to do something else to show that. Like it's never going to be enough. There's always got to be something that I got to do to show that I that I can prove. Um, and I think the beauty of the learning that came out of that experience, um, and, I, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think one of the opportunities is, you know, this, I, I use the word allyship a lot. I, I do a lot of uh, public speaking around allyship, and we need men to show up as allies for other men. We need white men to be allies to not just women, but to black men as well, right? And, and I think it should be easier for white men to be allies to black men than it is to say, men to be allies to women because we have a commonality there, right? We, we, if, we're, if we're traditionally masculine, we're thinking about how to achieve that promotion. We're wanting to be the best of our, at our job. We wanna be perceived as successful, right? So all of those things are commonalities And so I think if we can understand that and then understand that I might have less privilege than you do, then where do we come together in that? I think that's the beauty of that interaction that you have. So it's not just about being aware, it's then what do you do with that awareness? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what allyship is. You can't just raise your hand and say, yes, I'm an ally because, you know, I I, I brought in two, two minorities onto my team. It's okay, no, but what have you done? What areas and what can you demonstrate that you have done that you have self-sacrificed maybe, right? In, in some instances, you might be in a meeting and it may not be your time to speak because that person that's a minority might have something better to say. Are you aware enough to step back and allow that person to speak? That's allyship. And that's when you're really moving the needle as opposed to just bringing people in the room.
0: Well, I, th- I think if if I could, one of the things that I've what I've seen over the years is like that allyship and being an advocate for other people's voices i think one of the things that that really was revealed to me in that instance and and through a number of other instances that i've experienced over the years is is the the value in in being able to say you know how do i don't want to explain this it's almost like the value in being able to create space for that voice to come forward right like my wife is a marriage and family therapist and so we do a lot of work with couples And, and sometimes there's a a, a dynamic where one person doesn't feel like they can bring their voice fully forward. And so it's, it's almost like there's a period of time where the other person needs to elicit that voice or create the space for that voice to come forward more, knowing that there's, there's a discrepancy there, right? Whether it's a, whether it's an inequality, whether it's a wound, whether it's a, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I think what I hear you saying is also like this importance of, not just allyship but advocacy, you know, and being able to say like what what do you have to say? You know, like what like let's let's create an open dialogue, like let's create a yeah. little bit more space for that to come forward. Um, yeah.
1: very and cool. Adv- man. I-, I was gonna say the last point is that the advocacy has to also take place when those people aren't in the room.
0: Uh, you know
1: what I mean? Yeah. That's that's
0: also important. Yeah. yeah, that's so good. Um I, I know that we're running out of time here and I want to respect uh you know respect your your time. I do want to just end off on um, just a, a, a few quick things. Um, when it comes to things like providing and protecting, I'm wondering if you can just illuminate a little bit about what that's like to be a man of color and and the 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 the, the perspective and the pressures that men of color feel around providing and protecting, and how that actually shows
1: up in your community. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a great question, and I think traditionally it's been because of. Some structural issues, right? Whether it's mass incarceration or um, crime, uh, Black women have been in large part more educated than we have been. Um, You know, they've got, I think the percentage of uh, Black women with advanced degrees are are greater than Black men. You know, even now with entrepreneurship, uh, Black women are leading the way. So there is becoming more of a disparity in terms of income inequality in that community. Um, and so that's created some pressure for, for men to kind of have to contend with not only that reality, but also uh, comparing that to, and having to reconcile that with uh, traditional masculine norms. But then you also add into bringing it back full circle to the, the environment that we're living in now with Corona and you know a lot of people losing their jobs and men, black, white or whatever, having to reanalyze and rethink their their worth, right? their sense of self-worth, where some of us have lost our jobs, so we can't be the primary breadwinners, we're having, to for, we're having to think how we now show up for our family, and in what other ways do we provide for our family? And I think, again, that's something that I tweeted about recently. It's, it's, it's that we put so much of our self-worth as men on the amount of money and material possessions and things that we can provide, and not so much on our ability and capacity to love and to be compassionate. And to be present with, excuse, with our loved ones, and so I think that's the. I, I would say it's a, a good thing that has come out of this whole Corona thing is that it's forcing us to look at other ways that we can provide for the people that we love that are not just financial and material. So,
0: so good, man. So good. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to end our, our time together here today. Um, but I would love to have you back on the show and and get yeah, into some other to topics. Back. Cause this, uh, this, this is both illuminating and exciting and I, and I love the dialogue and, and I love the way that you present the the concepts. I think it's, it's just very, it's very concise and something that we can easily sort of digest. So um, if people wanted to learn a little bit more about you about your work, uh, we'll have the links
1: below but where where can they go to follow you? Yeah, well, you can uh, you can watch the Dear Men show on Yahoo News. Um, that's all on Yahoo News. You can just type in Dear Men, Jason Rosario. Uh, You can find me on all social platforms as well at Jason with two underscores Rosario and at the Lives of Men as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome, my friend. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, For everyone that's out there listening, uh, definitely share this episode far and wide if you enjoyed it. And even if you didn't, still share it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't forget to leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're tuning into us on. And until next week, this is Connor Veeden signing off.